Welcome to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with Lee Jackson. So you've got to work at a fundamental level of belief. So I've done a lot of modeling with things like NLP about what are the great beliefs that fantastic communicators and great stand-up comedians and brilliant speakers have, right? And there's yeah. several, there's several. Uh, I'll give you one, could give you many. Okay. Well, my favorite one, which is one to help control how you feel, goes like this. And this is the one I'd shared with the audience who wanted more confidence. Because in the session before mine, when I decided to play a bit of jazz, they all had to give like a put together business presentation and deliver it back to the room. And yeah. remember most of them had stood over here going, I'm not very confident, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. they didn't have a particularly pleasant time with any of that. So I thought, oh, okay. what can I give them that would help? I gave him a few things, but I said there's like a master belief, I think, that all great presenters have. Now, they might not be conscious of it. It might be something on a deeply unconscious level they do. But we've modelled it and made it a conscious thing. And it goes like this. Here's the master belief, right, to help you control how you feel and have a great time on stage and in front of any audience, unless it's family and friends, right? They don't know. It's called. They don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, so yesterday, not yesterday, whatever day, where are we now? Thursday, Tuesday, with this audience, I came out. I like having a big flip chart because you can, why I like flip, I'm not knocking slides. I know you do a great job with slides. What I say with, with slides is most people don't use slides. They abuse them. And the key way in which they abuse them is to remember yeah. what they're going to say and do. But that's another topic. Flip charts are like, because flip chart kind of goes, here's an idea I've just thought of yeah, yeah. that we can discuss. Yeah. And also your personality comes through because it's not all corporate and typeface. So yeah, quite yeah. like a good use of a flip so chart. So just to clarify, I do use flip charts. Yeah. And I've just been learning how to draw cartoons to do flip charts better. So that, there you go. There you go. Yeah, well, yeah. well done. Interesting. Yeah. So, so tell me how you use a flip chart. So because I just thought of it, right? So right. I, don't, I just write on the flip chart. Here's a master belief to help you control how you feel. They don't know. For example, I've just started speaking. I've got 45 minutes. You've no idea if what I'm going to cover now is what I plan to cover. Yeah. You wouldn't know if I said what I plan to say and you won't know if I said it unless I'm stupid enough to say to you, I meant to say this and do that. Now, that's not to be a slipshod or whatever, but I think we get so hung up on, oh, I meant to do this and I meant to do that. And I think if you've done your rehearsal and you've tried out in front of an audience and all that beforehand, trust your unconscious mind that you've got the muscle memory, that the important stuff that needs to come out will come out. And that yeah. other little thing you're meant to do, it's not critical. Yeah. But a lot of people put, invested so much time and effort and emotion in it that they can't help themselves. Not professional speakers, but business presenters maybe go, oh, I meant to do this. In front of the audience, I meant to do this, I meant to do yeah. that. And they don't know. Yeah. Right. So just do your prep, do your rehearsal, do all that. But go out there thinking, you know, they don't know. They don't know what I plan to play here. They don't know what I was going to do. So if I did it, so that's cool. So now yeah. I can have a good time. Yeah. That's very good. I think we've talked about this before. Uh, presentation mastery, yeah. we all do that kind of stuff. There's no new stuff in that, really. It's a finite subject. And so, I, yeah, I think I use the phrase, never tell the audience what they don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like the way you deepen that into a more of a belief system and working on it. I mean, I've seen people get really nervous over, you know, they spent ages and they spent money on a very specific prop. Yeah. that they love yeah. and they spent 60 quid having something made and, uh, and then you think why did you bother using that I know <laughs> because they didn't try out with an audience first did they right <laughs> so for my show in Edinburgh right I've got one of those you'd probably recognise it this is audio but think of the Wheel of Fortune like yeah. off the telly but it's a miniature version of your spin yeah. Yeah, right yeah. and I got that got it off internet right like you do and I tried it out here to make yeah. sure it didn't fall over whatever and I loved it right and it turned out the audience liked it as well. It's a big old thing, is it? Like a spinning round it's a spinner, you know, it's with a clicker on it. Like a... it's got, it clicks and yeah. you can write topics on it. So nice. the format for the show is, because my big thing is, 
I like variety. I never give the same presentation twice, right? I'll use yeah. different bits and they'll come together differently. So the format for the show in Edinburgh is that the audience suggests topics, write them on the board and there might be some topics from the previous show and we spin it. Whatever topic we land on, that's what we're going to talk about now uh, with audience yeah. involvement because that keeps it fun for me every night. And yeah. it keeps it fun for audience. So you can come to more than one show because the chat, the biggest chance we're doing a show in Edinburgh, there's 3,000 shows, is bums on seats, right? So if you can get somebody to come to your show twice, because yeah, it's going to yeah. be different, that's got to be good, <laughs> right? So it's a purely kind of economical thing as well. Economics come into that, yeah. But I tried it out, you know, and it would have been easy to have fallen in love with that particular prop mm. because I thought it's a nice thing, nice idea. But I've tried it with an audience for two weeks every night here and they liked it, so now it's in show. Now, the only thing I will say to you is, I reckon after about a month in Edinburgh, you might be th sick of carrying that thing around with you, right? Well, I've got, <laughs> I've got two, yeah. <laughs> this is why I'm probably going to end up staying. I, I tried an Air... I went to Recce last August. I tried... I got an Airbnb and it was really swanky and nice and reasonable. Yeah. But it was 15 minutes out of town. So I think what I'm going to do is stay in a halls of residence in a little tiny, like, cell. Oh, Okay. Two minutes from venue for that exact reason. Yeah. <laughs> because again, as speakers, I think, you know, we're talking about all this highfalutin stuff, aren't we, right? But I think it's like, my view would be, you've got to travel light, right? I mean, look at the size of this thing you're recording with, right? But equally, yeah. you know, more stuff you have. So yeah. props and all that. So I kind of think, you know, good question to ask yourself would be this. If I got off the plane sort of in my underwear almost. Like my luggage hadn't turned up. Nothing's turned up. I've got nothing. I've got a flip yeah. chat. I've got a slide. I could still give my presentation. Do you often travel on airplanes just in your underwear? I do with this virus that's going you around. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? You, you yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What I mean is, if you know, worst case scenario, yeah, yeah. that you can go on that stage and just, yeah. there's just you. That's all you've got, you. And you can yeah. do a great job. Then everything else is a bonus. But if you're absolutely 100% reliant on that one prop or that slide or that flip chart or anything else. So I think the gold standard as a speaker is you need to be able to hold the room, just you. Yeah. And then this is going to obviously make it even better. Yeah. But then again, for confidence. Yeah. But if you, can, if you become over reliant on these things that, again, you might just like and you always have to use, when they don't work, you're screwed. Yeah. So when, I, you know, that video don't run or that slide don't yeah. work, you, what are you going to do? Yeah, and I think it happens, doesn't it? I think one of the first gigs I ever did was when I was delivering with you and Paul McGee yeah. and Phil Hesketh, and something happened to the projector stopped working. And it was one of the first gigs I ever did, and I was, like, panicking a bit about this. But I remember you distinctly saying, oh, it'll be finally, let's just do it without it. Yeah. And you and just did, did it. And <laughs> sometimes it's better. Right, so the guy I did my NLP training with, a guy called David Shepard, who's awesome, like awesome, trainer, speaker, whatever. And I worked with David maybe once a year for free, just turn up and do some stuff with him. And he actually modelled me. So if you don't know about NLP, it models about, you know, finding somebody who does something with excellence and figure out what they do, like their beliefs and stuff, right? So that was a really interesting experience. But every time I turn up, he's even better, which I love. You know, I'm like hanging on to his coattails. Oh my God, he was good. Lash, he's even better now, right? But his colleague said, you know, when David became great, and so what he said, the time we did a one-week workshop in Malta and we forgot all the manuals for the delegates <laughs> and he forgot his train-the-trainer sort of manual. Yeah. So he yeah. just had to do it. Yeah. Because he knew it. And it I just see. freed him from all that, you know, yeah. that we need to be on page nine by this time and all that stuff. Yeah. So I don't know what's saying you do that, but I think mm. if you put yourself in situations where there's maybe not any or very few consequences where it's just, what could I do if it was just me? Yeah. Just that, that foundation of confidence it gives you. And you may discover that it's better that way. Yeah, yeah. Might not well, be. Well, I still remember uh, Phil Hesketh talking yeah. about that. He used to, because he's from an academic background, 
he used to have hundreds of notes on stage with him. Yeah. And one day they all fell on the stage and he just, he never used notes after that. Yeah, because it he turned out he knew it. And I get so, it, we're all on the journey, right? Thing, we're all on the journey. And I get yeah. that. And in the early days, that's fine. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. But you need to have a plan, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the whole notes thing, right? If we just talk about that. I, and I get it in the early days. And again, difference between a trainer and a speaker is trainers are allowed to have notes. This might not be true, but I think that the audience sees a speaker behind the lectern, for starters, yeah. and with notes and a lot of slides, they might unconsciously think this person doesn't know what they're doing or what they're talking about. Because okay. why the hell does they need all these notes, right? Yeah. So as a speaker, you don't want to be behind the lecture, you want to command the space. In fact, even more so, one of the things we discovered when David, the NLP guy, modelled me was, which I'd not realised because I was doing it on an unconscious level, this, every time I perform, I always get off the stage, at least once if not more times, and getting amongst the audience and oh, chat okay. to them. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to do that from behind a lecture with notes. Yeah, well, you, I guess we could say that if you're behind a lecture and you're lecturing, you're not yeah. speaking, right? It's a bar- so it's physical different. barrier. And yeah, again, like yeah. I say, you know, all yeah. these topics we know about. And I think, yes, it's a journey. So if at the moment listening to this, you're the sort of person who says, well, I kind of need my notes. All I'm saying is we, we've given you two examples. Phil Esketh, and in my case, David Shepard, when they didn't have the notes, turned out yeah. they knew it anyway. Yeah. And it frees you ultimately. Surely we can all agree. We could talk about what makes a great speaker, but I would argue it's a person who can be themselves, whether they're speaking to 10 people or 10,000 people. Might be a bigger version of themselves, but fundamentally, because I've met him, Billy Connolly's the same in a room as he is on a stage, fundamentally. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. a big, slightly yeah. bigger version. And that's what we're aiming for. And I think if we're not careful, become this kind of version. In extreme cases, you know, the PowerPoint version who like walk them down, get behind lights and Prince Charles sort of hands behind the back and all that stuff, you know. And we're professional speakers, we don't do that. But, you know, quite often yeah. me and you are the only external speaker. So we have to sit through this garbage, don't we? Again, I can't name the client, but that happened this week. You know, it was an academic kind of type conference. And there were some good bits, but there was quite a lot of people behind lecterns with notes, with lots of slides yeah. that you couldn't read at the back. And, you know, people doing the classic, you won't be able to read this at the back. It's a, bit <laughs> of, it's a bit of a crappy slide. And you're thinking, well, what's the point on that then? Yeah. You must have talked about that loads, you know. So and, you get, and obviously yeah. that's really just saying to the audience, it's not for you. That yeah. slide isn't for you, it's yeah. for me. Because I can't but, remember I've mentioned this before, and we, we are going to tackle more and more stuff around anxiety. Yeah. The more I teach and coach people presentation skills stuff, you know, like masterclass stuff, the more I do that, the more I realize that actually most of that stuff is about anxiety. So, yeah, so they're not. But it took me years to realize that, because I was thinking like you, you know, we talked about earlier, I was thinking, oh, it's a skills thing, right? It's a skills yeah, thing. But actually, they need the notes there because... They might have studied that for 30 years, but in their heads, they still yeah. think they don't know what they're talking about. Just like know? running a marathon is 100% in your head, right? So it's presenting. <laughs> yeah. So the vast majority of work we do when we're working with delegates and on workshop is all about controlling your state. More importantly, it starts with them thinking about how they control their state, but it ends with them thinking, do you know what? It's not about you. It's how yeah. do you get the audience to feel a certain way. So tell us your lovely phrase that I still quote about state. Can you remember it? Well, it could be in a right state or in the right state. Yeah. In fact, I use that as a bit of jazz. I absolutely love that. I've, I have your name on one of, on one yeah. of the things and I mention you, yeah, uh, you and I do it in that Leeds accent because yeah. it doesn't make sense without a Leeds accent, right? right? So I mean, in a right state. Well, in a right state. And I, again, I said this in Edinburgh on Tuesday. So I'm saying, you know, most people, so it was a bit like the weather today in Edinburgh. You know, some people believe that, you know, when somebody's in a right state, they can't wait to tell you, first of all, I'm in a right state. <laughs> have you seen weather? 
you know, I can't employ people from Europe anymore, whatever your thing is, right? People often blame the weather or they blame other people. And talking about taking personal responsibility, if you've got a dog or otherwise, right, you have to decide. Why people find it a challenge to control how they feel is this. They don't believe they have a choice. Most people do not believe that they have a choice about how they feel. Wow. So they either go, it's the weather, it's raining, it's snowing, or they go, it's other people. I was feeling great till I met you, right? Yeah. But it's all external factors. It's the audience. It's this, oh, right? Okay. And so most people, until you change the belief that you have a choice, you've no tools available to you. Yeah, yeah. So it starts with going, I have to believe I have a choice. Now what tools are available to me? And there's millions. And I would dispute that presenting is a finite thing because I keep finding more and more when I talk to more and more people, ways they do it. But there's fundamental things you can do. As I say, if you're outside, if you train yourself to be externally focused, then you can't be doing any of that talking to yourself in a negative way inside your own head because yeah. you're not in your yeah. head. Yeah. So how can you be talking to yourself? But you have to train yourself to do that. So in the early days, we've discovered when they modelled me that the other thing that I do, apart from getting off the stage and engaging with the audience, is this. I've trained myself that when we've already mentioned having a really crafted introduction is important. So the last thing it says on my introduction, of course, is my name. You know, yeah. please welcome Steve McDermott. And I've trained myself, if I'm at this backstage or the side of the stage or wherever I'm coming from in the room, right, that as soon as my name's said, if I've been inside my head at all, I go externally focused. It's like a Pavlov dog reaction, okay. anchor stimulus response, name out of your head. Great. And then for 45 minutes, I'm out of my head. And then yeah, afterwards, yeah. I might go, oh, I wonder how that went. So Bruce Forsyth yeah. used to call that his Brucey skip. Yeah. So you see, you know, he did a little skip, and that was his thing. He went, so that's your skip, right? That's yeah, you and you see in sport. You hear that name. Boom. You see in sport a lot. Yeah. You see in sport a lot with anchors, don't you? The people will, you know, a tennis player will bounce the tennis ball exactly six times because they're getting ready to perform, yeah. getting ready to be. So we would call, I would call that, and you talked about this probably before, but when I say out your head, I mean not inside, not any internal dialogue or think or checking, feeling, how is this going? What I mean by that is flow, is after it's often called. Yeah. Flow. So that's unconscious competence. That's like just doing. Or yeah. musicians would call it being in a groove, right? Okay. It's like, and the best way to screw somebody up who's good at doing what they do, ask them how they do it. <laughs> so I was doing a thing with Asda back in the day, and they said, oh, we're going, we're going temping bowling in the evening. It went great. Not really done a lot of temping bowling. And we're in two teams, and the guy in this, whatever, you roll the thing down the lane or whatever, he was like getting strike after strike. And I thought, I've got to mess with his head because we're going to lose, right? <laughs> so I sidled up to him and I said, I can't help but notice you're quite good at temping ball. And he went, oh yeah, I lived in America for like 10 years, just go like yeah. every week, you know, to get shot. Can I ask you a question? What's that? I said, well, you know, when you come into that white line there, are you putting your left foot forward first or your right foot? And you know your thumb, does it go here or here? And then he couldn't do it. <laughs> so you messed, it, you messed him up, yeah, yeah. So the thing about, you know, if somebody's brilliant at what they're doing, you say to them, how do you do that? They'll go, I just do. Yeah. But that's not the truth. Right. Yeah. So then what you do, if you want to model people, by the way, so Des Lynham back in the day, going back a few years, I'm doing an event with Des, right? And I thought he's quite good at life stuff, isn't he? Yeah. So I remember famously back when he was on BBC, there was a bomb scare at the Grand National. Okay. And yeah, the, yeah. So he's a sports commentator, yeah, those who didn't know. Yeah, and it's live yeah. and he's to right. camera and there's right. like people looking for bombs and they've closed the racetrack and he's having to like live chat. And wow. so, you know can I ask you a question, you know, when it's like all going down, like it's live TV and you've got that little thing in your ear going, cut to whatever, and you've got three minutes and yeah. stop him talking now and all that, right? How do you do all that? You know, what's your top tip if ever I'm in a similar situation? And he went, I don't know. Because he's doing it unconscious competence, right? It's yeah, flow. Yeah. So what you do if that happens to you and you want to get a bit of, of a right. nugget, you say, I know you don't know Des, 
But if he did know, what would you say? Okay, I get and you. And he went, I'd say, they don't know what's going on, so it's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I got a few little tips. Now, that nice. doesn't mean I can be in, right? But it gives me a bit of a two-steps-forward approach, right? So if yeah. modelling other people and asking them, what's going on in your head, if anything? How do you do that? How do you do this? You know, so my book, we haven't mentioned my book, right? It's coming out in June, right? How to be a complete and utter F up in life, work and everything. Third edition. What's in that book? It's, it's 47 and a half steps to lasting under achievement. So Lee, I guarantee if you read that book, <laughs> when it comes out in June, available on Amazon and W.H. Smith, it will propel you into the slow lane, the total inadequacy. <laughs> no, I'm in it. I mean, I'm on it. No, it's actually, it's actually a book for, it's a book about self-development, but for people with a sense of humour. Yeah, yeah. So I've built a career on my Yorkshire brand, really. And I, I love Tony Robbins, but a lot of people yeah. can't stand him, especially if they're from Lancashire, Yorkshire, whatever, because he's too rah-rah. But a lot of his ideas are great, right? So I've just taken a lot of this great personal development stuff and like giving it a Yorkshire slant. And the, yeah. and the book does that, right? Why was I telling you that? I was just promoting the book one, really. No, it's good. It's good. I want to tell me because it's a third edition of your book. Yeah. You developed it and it's coming out. It does have the F word in it, it but that's deliberate because people are buying books with the F word yeah, in, right? Part of the brand. And also, I wanted to reach a new market. So, you know, it was, right. it, the first edition and second edition were called How to Be a Complete and Utter Failure. But most people who are going to read that book have read it. I mean, it's translated into 30 languages. People really love it. It's still available on Amazon. I wanted to reach two types of people people who, who perhaps would never pick up a personal development book. Because yeah. there's people like you and me. First place we go is, oh, business, but oh, that's good. Oh, presenting. Oh, yeah, confidence. Yeah. You know, you've got an audio book coming. Oh, I'll listen to that. Yeah, and then yeah. there's people. Well, so there's this great mass of people who if you could get it into their hands. Now, because my background in advertising, first thing you do is you go, well, you go along the bookshelf and it's like Awaken the Giant Within, Chicken Soup for the Soul. I can change your underpants in seven days, whatever, right? How do you stand it and all that noise? Well, yeah. if you have a book that says how to be a failure... So we might just on impulse pick it up and if you can get it in hand. Yeah, yeah. Right? But my other desire with the third edition is, the thing we were saying before we started is if you're going to write a book, having a big long-term goal with the book, so I would say think second, third edition. So Paul McGee, a friend of ours, he doesn't do that. He just writes loads of books. So he's got like, I don't know, eight books or something, right? So you can either write eight books, which is good, but quite hard work. Or in my case, write one book, but have it come out three times. (laughs) <laughs> so the first edition came out in 2002. That was 39 and a half steps. The second edition came out in 2007. That was 44 and a half steps. And the third edition is going to be 47 and a half steps. So there's three new things I can talk okay. about. And one of the things which I'd like to kind of maybe finish on really or at the end of this is, so, you know, I, I made some massive changes in my life in the last few years. So I stopped drinking at 60 alcohol for good. So that's nearly three years ago. Right. Right. And people say, oh, well done. How did you do that? You know, need to read the book because I tell you in the book, if you want to reduce your drinking or stop drinking mm. from good, you can learn that in the book. But I would say for now to give you a tip is this. I didn't do it with willpower and motivation. Okay. Even though I'm a motivational speaker, because if you've ever met somebody who's tried to stop drinking or reduce the drinking, like in January or whatever, with willpower, two things will happen. Willpower is finite, so their willpower will run out and they will fall off the wagon. Yeah. But more importantly, they'll be such a miserable bugger to be around. <laughs> right? Now, I'm a motivational speaker in residence. Where are we sat now? In a pub. In right? a bar, right? Yeah, yeah. And I pretty much live here at the minute because I'm putting my show on. I love being around people drinking. It's not an issue because I didn't do it with willpower. I pretty much experienced spontaneous sobriety. So I talk about that in the book. But more important right. to me than that. So I stopped drinking at 60. I joined the gym at 61 and I ran my first marathon at 62. 
right? Mm. And that's all in the book. But the main thing is how I had two massive bouts of clinical depression. That's in the book too. Okay. Right? And my goal with that was this. I think it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant that men in particular are now a lot more comfortable to tell other people, particularly other men, that they've had some sort of mental illness, in my case, depression. But yeah. I'm, st- I'm not interested in telling people about it. I'm more than happy to tell all your listeners to this that I've had depression, big whoop-de-doo. Right? Yeah. But there's a difference between telling people and talking about it. And I think the people with depression find it really difficult to talk about it. I'm happy to tell you the experience. And I thought, where's, what's not being talked about? And what's not being talked about with, with mental illness and wellness is the people who have to look after the person who has depression. So in my case, that's my wife, Candy. Yeah. So I got Candy to write that step of the book from the point of view of somebody caring for somebody who okay. had depression. And my goal, my absolute number one reason for bringing out this book is that somebody will go into Dwight Smith's, see this book called How to Be a Complete and Utter F Up and think that looks a bit of fun, pick it up and then maybe get to that chapter at the end of the book and read that chapter about how to deal with somebody who's suffering from a mental illness and think that is really useful, I can use that. That's my main motivation. Okay. Well, so thanks for being so honest, Steve. I appreciate that. So you... You know, it's not many motivational speakers, inverted commas, that would admit that they've, you know, had depression. Well, how you know. funny, how funny. How, what does that look like? An unmotivated motivational speaker, <laughs> right? So here's the other thing I would say. I know we're talking about things in general, but you need to realise people out there. So I used to go along thinking, well, I'm all motivated and all that. And I yeah. used to think, I think it's the, well, I know it's the Daily Mail has a section where they interview celebrities and they go, can you still run up a flight of stairs to say, you know, now you're whatever. And one of the questions is, have you ever suffered from a mental illness or depression? Right. And the vast majority of people go, no, because I'm one of those half-class full-type people. Yeah. This is, if you take nothing else from this podcast, I'm going to get on my soapbox on the high part corner now, it's this. Okay. The thing I learned with those two big brushes with clinical depression is this, you don't have a choice. It's not a choice about whether you decide whether your glass is half empty, half full. It can happen to anyone. It happened to me. I'm still unclear what the causes were. Candy, my wife, said her phrase for it is depression just is. And if we're not careful, we spend a lot of time chatting about, oh, what caused it? What caused it? And talking about that, we need to talk about how we deal with it. So if you take nothing else from this, you need to learn the big learning. It's an education on mental wellness and depression in particular is this. You don't have a choice. It's not like, oh, I'm not that type of person. And you see these celebrities go, I'm, oh, I'm always a quite positive guy. It's not about that. Mm. If it can happen to me, an international motivational speaker, it can happen to you. And it can happen to one in three people. So we need to be happy to talk about it, even though the person with depression will find it hard to talk about it. Great advice. And not only have we done a podcast, I think we've probably done two podcasts here, Steve. So we've got so much content, I think we might chop it in half. So thank you. Where, where can people follow you and your adventures right, so, in the next few months? Right, so Instagram... Similarly, yeah. I've got to get good at Instagram, so I need a lot more for my grown up children. Said, if you're doing a show in Edinburgh and you want to reach people under 30, Dad, you need to monster Instagram. So somebody had already got my name, Steve McDermott. So uh, it's, and you can maybe put this on a link, it's at Steve Mac Thinking. Okay. At Steve Mac Thinking. So Instagram would be great. LinkedIn is a classic one. Please get on LinkedIn. I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. I'll be posted about the show. As you know, me and Curly do a thing every Tuesday, the Confident Club Cuppa, where we just chat about the stuff we're talking about now. And Google me. Stuff will come great. up. You can see my show reel, see what you think of yeah. that. 
And you also see him coming off an airplane in his underpants. That's so right, that, all live in Edinburgh. Yes. Yeah. So thanks so much, Steve. You've been a real help to me over the years. Sounds like lots of people are coming in, so we better finish anyway. So thanks so much for being part of it. Please check out, I'll put the links on the podcast notes so you can see that. And just a quick reminder as well that my audiobook is out. Get Good at Presenting is out now on audiobook on Audible and iTunes. Check it out and check out Steve on Instagram and everything else, Steve MacThinking. Thanks so much, Steve. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with your host, Lee Jackson. If you'd like to know more about Lee's work as a motivational keynote speaker and presentation coach, visit his website at leejackson.biz. That's leejackson.biz.